Amen. What a solid hope and security we have. The Lord will hold us fast. I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll read verses 37 to 41 for our sermon this morning. Acts 2, 37 to 41. This is what the Bible says in that portion. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were who those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible, for the truth that it is, for its power, its sufficiency. I praise you that it is a word that has accessibility into the human soul beyond anything any human being can do. We thank you that it's on the basis of this that we can proclaim with confidence that you will hold us fast. Uh, we pray now that as we come to this moment, Lord, that you will grant us illumination. Lord, we know that if we fail to preach your word right and fail to hear it right, the problem is not with the word. So, Lord, please come and give us help, we pray. Do us good this morning by your word and the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Our sermon text for this morning uh, opens for us a window into just the intrinsic power of the word of God, what it is able to accomplish on its own by its own power, without manipulation, without any kind of tricks or games. I wonder if that is your view of the Word of God, if that's what you think of the Word of God. If, if you think of the Word of God as a dynamite that when planted in a human heart, in God's time and God's way, it will blow off all the resistance that ever was there against God's purpose. Thus far in the book of Acts, we have seen Peter raise his voice in the boldest evangelistic move yet after the coming of the Holy Spirit. He has proclaimed an amazing redemptive historical sermon. He built his sermon around four Old Testament passages. Joel chapter 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 132, and Psalm 110. And then, to conclude, to cap off his sermon, he says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God had made him, meaning Christ, both Lord and Christ, 
this Jesus whom you crucified. And then Luke tells us the result of that preaching. And the result of that preaching demonstrates for us God's word has at least four stunning characteristics. The first, it is powerful. The second, it gives specific commands. The third, it gives specific promises. And the fourth, it causes God-centered growth. Those are the four things I want us to consider in relationship to the gospel this morning. The gospel is powerful. Look at verse 37 of our text. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The listeners of Peter felt a deep piercing effect in their hearts from hearing Peter's words. These people were conscience stricken. Something, they were awakened to something. The word of God penetrated them to depths that no preacher, no church, no denomination, no methodology, no philosophy of ministry can ever reach. Just this word can reach human beings. In that place. So, right here, we are shown that the word of God preached by Peter is both sufficient and powerful to affect spiritually dead humans at the deepest depth of their person. That God's word can go that far. And that's the testimony of the word itself about what it can do. Hebrews 4 says, The word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the power, the intrinsic power of God's word to lodge itself in human heart and awaken a consciousness that was not there just moments prior. That's what we see right here. You can think of what we are being told here as a doctor sitting with his patient and conducting some kind of an endoscopy on them, he sends this instrument through their mouth all the way down, and by that, he can reveal things about the person's health that they might have had suspicions here and there about, but no one had a full picture of what was going on in the inside. The Word of God lodges itself that deep and uncovers things that no one else would have seen before the word of God took its place there. Now in Peter's situation here, the people are not just cut to the heart, they verbalize the stirring that God has brought about in their hearts. Verse 37 again. Now when they heard this, so note they heard something, and they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So the word had a heart-level effect on them, and they spoke saying, Brothers, what shall we do? I hope you, if you have not believed Jesus, that this morning you are saying, What shall I do? Because you can't be oblivious about this. You can't hear this and just go home and continue life as normal. If you do that, that's damnation for you. This people came to terms with the doom that was hanging over their heads. That's why they couldn't go home without asking this question. What shall we do? 
The people realize that they stand guilty for rejecting and crucifying the Messiah. They recognize that there is no greater guilt than to reject the one on whom God has put his stamp of approval. There's no greater guilt than that. They came to terms with that. So the initial bewilderment that we saw that began the Pentecost morning and the mockery that began the Pentecost morning has shifted away to a a deep conviction of sin. We are doomed. What shall we do? They recognize you can't just hear this and go back home and live life as you always did. Something has to change. Eternity hangs in the balance in what I just heard. It's, it's probably the case that some who were mocking initially are now shuddering under the weight of the conviction that they feel for rejecting and crucifying and blaspheming the Messiah. They see that what they are seeing with their eyes and hearing with their ears in terms of the coming of the Holy Spirit is the culmination of a redemptive work orchestrated and masterminded and brought to fulfillment by the hand of the living God. So you must do something in response. You can't, God cannot be walking over these things for millennia only for you to hear and go back home and live life as you always did. No, you, this is... Truth that summons a response from the hearers. It's not truth that leaves anyone ambivalent and uncaring. God's word is powerful. There's a story in the book of 2 Kings 22 about King Josiah who came to power after his very idolatrous father had closed the temple and led Judah away into horrendous idolatry. And when Josiah came to the throne, one of his key commitments was to open the temple and to restore the worship of the one true and living God. In the course of cleaning up the temple of all the gory mess that idolatry had brought in, the priests and the Levites discovered the book of the law, which is kind of shocking to think about, that the people of God had so forgotten about the book of the law, it had to be discovered. Well, it was discovered and then brought and read before Josiah. The Bible tells us when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. That's, that's an example, again, of God's word lodging deep in a human heart. And he said, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that, we have been, that, have been, that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. God's word has an intrinsic power in it that we are not called to manipulate or change or do whatever with it. It just works the purposes of God. Paul said to the Thessalonians that when you receive the word of God, you received it for what it truly is. Not the word of man, but the word of God, which is at work in you. God's word does work in people. Jesus said the kingdom of God is as a man is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. A pastor or a church who knows exactly how God's word is going to grow is not a biblical pastor. 
This verse says, the person knows not how. Has no understanding of the inner workings of what God is orchestrating by his word. In the heart of the sheep he is summoning to himself. That's how the kingdom grows. And that's how it's grown for 2,000 years. And come to us. Do you know, beloved, that the reformation that we celebrate, during which God used individuals like Martin Luther and John Calvin and the others to recover the gospel. Do you know that would not have happened as we know it if God's word were not as powerful as it is? Just listen to the testimony of Martin Luther. He says this, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and root God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friend Philip and Amsdorf, <laughs> the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. That's his testimony of the power, the fuel, the bombshell that blew off all of the vault that the Roman Catholic system had built to keep the word in obscurity. And then Luther asks, what do you suppose is Satan's thought when one tries to do the thing by kicking up a roar? He sits back in hell and thinks, oh, what a fine game the poor fools are, are up to now. But when we spread the word alone and let it alone do the work, that distresses him. For it is almighty, it is the word. For it is almighty and takes captive the heart. And when the hearts are captured, the work will fall for itself. That's the power of God's word. Is, is that your view of God's word? Is that your conviction about the power of God's word. Is that what you believe about your unbelieving son or daughter or unbelieving grandchild or, or brother or sister or colleague or neighbor? It doesn't matter just how rejecting of the gospel they are right now. You don't need any power other than this gospel to hope for their salvation. You cannot pray and witness and disciple and teach with expectation and hope if your conviction of God's word is not Jesus' conviction of God's word. It is that powerful. It's impossible to defeat sin in your own life if you don't believe this about God's word. Because if you have stumbled into one sin and maybe stumbled again, you'll start to think, what's the point? But when you know the power of this word, you know that it's the sword by which you put to death the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body. A pastor who stops believing that needs to stop preaching. A church that stops believing that needs to close its doors. Beloved, the word of God is powerful to do God's work. And that is our confidence. That is our conviction. And on that we build. So the gospel... Is powerful. But secondly, the gospel gives specific commands. It doesn't leave people to guess what to do. It gives specific commands. Look at verse 38. This is Peter responding to the question of his audience. 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Like I said, Peter is responding to what the people just said. What shall we do? And Peter has provoked an urgent life's question with the word of God. So the word of God has the power to stir people to ask the ultimate questions in life. But we don't answer those questions by turning to someplace else. And let's just say, in the cultural moment we live in right now, there's tremendous pressure on pastors to act as if we get people into the kingdom by the word. And once they are in, we use different techniques to keep them in. That's not the way it works. They come in by the word. They stay in by the word. They finish the course by the word. So Peter provokes ultimate life's questions with the word. And when the questions get asked, Peter does not cook up something new to give them. He turns right back into the word to answer the question. Do you see that? He says, repent and be baptized. That is almost a verbatim quotation from what Jesus said before he ascended to heaven. Luke 24, 45 says, then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and listen to this, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. That's what Jesus said to the apostles. So when the people said, what shall we do? Peter goes back to Luke 24. You do what the Lord said we should tell people to do. Repent and be baptized. So Peter, by the word, provokes ultimate life's questions. And by the word, he answers ultimate life's questions. So when you wrestle with the biggest questions in life, you need not less of the word, but more of the word. When we wrestle with real big questions in life, we don't need less but more of the word. And when Peter answers the question, like I said, he gives specific commands. They are these, repent and be baptized. Brothers and sisters, we ought not to be fearful of calling people to repent. You should follow Peter's example. Calling people to repentance is the most loving thing you can do. To call somebody to renounce their sin and trust Jesus. There is no greater act of love when done as you ought to in the power of the Spirit for the sake of the good of their soul than that. One of the most challenging aspects of witnessing the gospel is to give clear directives like this. Calling someone To repent. Many times we think, we believe as believers that we will offend people. We will be obnoxious. We will come across as, you know, bigoted and and, and controlling of other people's opinions. We just, we, we would prefer rather to just say, this is what I hold. This is what I believe. And then the other person says, this is what I believe as well. And you just all get along. Now that's not the biblical mandate we have. The biblical mandate is to call people. And, and, and we do indeed offend people when we call them to repentance. We do indeed offend them. People don't want to be told what to do. People don't want to be invited into a life in which no, someone else is in charge than themselves. Human beings have been fiercely committed to their independence from Genesis chapter 3. They, they wanted not to have God over them. 
And they have always wanted that. So you should not be naive as to think somebody's going to understand when I say repent. They will just say that he's a very nice person. No, people will get offended. There's a story told about the Duchess of Buckingham who said something quite revealing of the human heart concerning John Wesley's preaching. She said, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. It is highly offensive and insulting. That's what she thought. She she hated being told she is wicked and needs to repent. And she's not alone in that. But that is part of the offense of the gospel. Jesus is king. He is exalted to the right hand of the Father and will stop at nothing until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. But here's the thing, beloved. Jesus is not not on some tyrannical power trip here. He is loving people by calling them to repentance. These people who get offended when they are called to repent are actually harassed and helpless. They are enslaved to various passions. They are deceiving and being deceived. There is no greater rescue mission than to call people away from the slave masters driving their lives to Jesus who gives them a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. It's the most loving thing to call someone to repent, to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. D.A. Carson tells the story of of a Jewish rabbi who had an, an evangelical evangelist, a friend of his who stopped by his house, and they talked religion. And this evangelist would insist to him, you and I don't believe the same thing. This is what the Bible teaches about the Messiah. This is what the Old Testament said in anticipation of the Messiah. And this is what the New Testament says in fulfillment, in, in, in describing to us the fulfillment of the coming of the Messiah. And they always disagreed. And one day they were invited to some public event as, you know, faith community leaders in their, in their state. And they rode together to the event. And as they were driving back, the rabbi turns to this evangelist and says to him, I don't get this. Most of my liberal friends keep trying to convince me that I and them believe the same thing. Most of my Roman Catholic friends keep trying to convince me that we believe the same thing. You are the only one. Who has been telling me, we don't believe the same things, and you are right. And the evangelist turned to him and said, and you know I love you. That's why I'm telling you what I'm telling you. So people will get offended, but there are some who will say, you are right. We don't believe the same thing. Some in whom the Lord is working and drawing home to himself, they will come to terms. Jesus is indeed Lord. And Peter, uh, Luke shows us here the depth of Peter's conviction about the urgency of the matter. Look at verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself, yourselves from this crooked generation. Peter is bearing witness. He is exhorting people. Peter is keenly aware of the High stakes of the situation. He knows it's eternal life and eternal death that are at stake. Believe it or not, the generation in which we live is crooked. And that's the case with every generation from Genesis chapter 3. It's been crooked, bent out of shape, opposed to God, wanting its own way. And people need to save themselves from it by hearing 
the gospel and being called to repentance. Repentance is a very repeated word in the book of Acts and in the, book, in the Bible in general. The reason for that is it is inextricably linked with a faithful preaching of the gospel. Many times we say we are not seeing fruit in our preaching, in our gospel witnessing, because we tell the whole story and stop short of calling people to repent, to take the action. But in the book of Acts, it includes telling people to turn away from former ignorance and guilt regarding the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus, the promised Messiah. It, in, it includes telling people to turn away from wickedness and evil, tell, telling people to turn away from former ignorance regarding the one true God and from the worship of idols, telling people to turn to God, to believe in Jesus the Messiah. It's required of Jews and Gentiles. You will never meet a human being who does not need to repent. That's just a fact. And Peter's point is this. The new age of salvation has dawned with the coming of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, and the outpouring of the Spirit. And all of that is good news. But it's bad news for you unless you repent. That's Peter's point. And the kind of repentance Peter is talking about here is very particular. It's not collective. It's not familial. We don't do it as a group. See what he says in verse 38. Repent and be baptized every one of you. So you stand as an individual before the Lord. I have a burden before I move away from the concept of repentance just to say, biblically, we are not just called to throw around the word repentance. We have to have an understanding of the inner walking of repentance. What does the kind of repentance that Peter is talking about here look like in its inner walking? We know it's a 180 degree turnaround away from sin to God. We know it means a fundamental change in your relationship with God and how you live your life. But what's the inner working of this repentance? And I would say biblically, there has to be at least three elements present for true biblical repentance to be happening. First, there has to be an intellectual acknowledgement of the sin. An agreement with God's assessment of the sinfulness of your sin. People do not repent from sins about which they disagree with God's word. When you say, God says that, but this is what I think about it, you are not repenting. There must be an intellectual agreement, an assent to God's word. What he says about the sin is exactly right. But that's not the only ingredient. All true repentance must begin with that. But it must never end with that. Why do I say that? Well, we have in the Bible people who agreed intellectually that their sin was sinful, but they never repented. You can think of Pharaoh or Balaam or Achan or Saul or Judas Iscariot. Every single one of these individuals said, I have sinned, but they did not repent. So repentance begins with an acknowledgement, but it never ends with an acknowledgement. Otherwise, it is not true biblical repentance. The second element is godly grief. It's a sorrow in your heart for violating the one true and living God. For shaking your fist against the holy and righteous God. You tremble at the righteous provocation that you have created in the heart of God by your sin. You know, people can grieve for any number of reasons. 
They feel shame that everybody now knows about their sin. They feel terrible that their reputation has been destroyed, their career has been wrecked, or their family is in bad shape, or their finances are terrible because of their sin. Their health has been jeopardized because of their sin. Any number of things can cause people to be sorrowful as a result of a sin they they committed. But what we are calling godly sorrow is sorrow that is not self-word. It's God-word. It looks at God and says, how could I... A mere creature shake my fist against the one true, holy, righteous, and sovereign God. That is godly grief. It must be present. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And when there is acknowledgement of sin and there is Godly grief, when that mixture happens in the heart, acknowledgement of sin and godly grief, the result is a turning around, a turning away from that sin. That's the third element. So acknowledgement, godly grief, and a turning around. Those three must be there together for genuine repentance to happen. When the first two are present, there is a resolve that gets created in the soul that says, I cannot, I will not go on committing this wickedness. I forsake this wickedness. It remembers and thinks it is blessed to repent and forsake sin. Think of the way the prodigal son repented. Or the thief on the right of Jesus repented. Or Zacchaeus repented. These individuals repented in a way that show us that when godly grief and intellectual acknowledgement of sin are present in their heart, they drive someone to the cross of Jesus Christ. And they can't go on sinning. Have you known this kind of repentance, brother or sister? Have you, is your life marked by this kind of repentance? This is not just from the day you, 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 you turned and trusted Christ. Every believer is supposed to be a repenter like this. When you stumble and repent, this is what you are looking for in your heart. If it's not there, you may be saying all the right words, but the heartfelt reality is just absent. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes shall find mercy. When you repent like this, you have the opportunity to obey the second command, which is be baptized And we get baptized in the name of Jesus. You know, we hear people talk today about belief. Just have faith. doesn't matter what you believe. Just believe something. Well, the biblical gospel will insist that we are not saved by merely believing. We are saved, rather, by believing a specific person. It's not just we choose something to believe and that's good enough. No, we have to believe a specific person. It is not our faith in something that saves. It is the object of our faith that makes our faith saving. It's because of the one we call upon. Peter said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not just a mere calling on some name. It's a calling on the specific name of the Lord. Because in Jesus has been fully and finally revealed the person of the one true and living God. When that happens, we show that by baptism in the name of Jesus. Baptism on the commission 
of Jesus, on the authority of Jesus. In our baptism, we are expressing a lifelong allegiance, unqualified allegiance to Jesus Christ. So the gospel is powerful. The gospel gives specific commands. The gospel makes specific promises. This is what Peter says. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. That's amazing news. Repentance leads a person to receive forgiveness from the one true and living God. That means God himself, with all of the authority of heaven, releases you from all the moral and legal consequences of all your sins forever. None of that ever comes back to haunt you before God. You are released forever. Your sins are canceled, pardoned, and remitted forever. Nobody's ever going to have the authority to dig those back up and hold them in the court of God, and it counts for anything. It's forgiven forever. That's the gospel promise we have. God forgives. And then, when we are thus forgiven, when we are thus cleansed, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is staggering news. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in the tabernacle. And there were specific instructions on how to build it. God could not dwell just anywhere. He is holy and awesomely holy. He's terrifying in his person. And the construction of the tabernacle has to be to the T, as he said it. And when it was so done, his presence came in the form of a cloud. And think about you. Unrighteous you, sinful you, spiritually filthy you. You are now so cleansed, God, by the person of the Holy Spirit, takes up residence in you. What could be more amazing than that? That the one true and living God comes to dwell with you. Now, beloved, remember, the coming of the Holy Spirit is the announcement of the dawn of the new age. The new age has arrived. The new and final stage in God's work of salvation has arrived. When you place your faith in Jesus, you are brought into the experience of the benefits of the new age. So that the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. The presence of God's Spirit is the mark of all people who repent and acknowledge that Jesus is the crucified, risen, and exalted Messiah and Lord. Now, recently, the government in Afghanistan collapsed, and the U.S. was evacuating all its citizens that were in Afghanistan. And everybody who was an American had to get on the plane and get out quickly because things had, things had become extremely dangerous. And then you think about, just, just picture in your mind, if you were there on the scene and you have the sea of people who know the horror that will be coming on them when the Taliban establishes itself in power, and that's been unfolding already, and you know, just right here, I need to get out of here. But from the perspective of those who have come to do the evacuation, you need a certain booklet in your hand to qualify to get into the airplane and be lifted out of danger. So, so just that booklet, the U.S. passport, is going to make the distinction as to who will live their life either at the mercy of the Taliban or out of here in a relatively safer, more organized country. That's how you knew who was going to get out and who was not going to get out. 
in the new age. How do we know who is in the people of God and who is outside of the people of God? We know by who has the gift of the spirit. That's how we know. And the gift of the spirit and the forgiveness of sins are two sides of the same coin. No one has one and not the other. There is no forgiven person in the name of Jesus who does not have the spirit. And there is no one who has the spirit who's not been forgiven in the name of Jesus. So when Peter says, you should repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the promise, the gift of the spirit. He is stating two sides of the same coin. That's how we know who is in and who is out. The value of this promise cannot be paid with any valuable in the world. It extends beyond the time of the apostles. It extends beyond the special ex- existence of the apostles. It goes into the future and it goes everywhere. Let me show you what I mean by that. So look at verse 39 of our text. There, Luke says, continuing Peter's response, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The phrase, for your children, marks a distance in time. That is to say, this promise is available, this benefit is available to future generations of Jews. The gift is available to them. It remains valid for future generations. This is the way God spoke to Noah when he made a covenant with him, spoke to Abraham when he made a covenant with him, and spoke to David. In, in Psalm 18, verse 50, we read, Great salvation he brings to his king, that's David testifying, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring. So this is a promise that is going to be valid for future generations as long as the earth endures. But here's the thing. In the context here, these future generations do not automatically enter into the promise. They have to themselves repent and be baptized. And then they will know that. So, so there is a chronological span of the promise that covers all of the time until Christ returns. But there's also a geographical span. Do you see that? It says, for those who are far away. So it's not just for those in geographically located in Jerusalem. Every person, everywhere, we would be doomed if this promise did not include this. It came to us and met us where we are, where we were, because of the truth of this promise. Those who are far away. Hopefully you remember in Ephesians 2, Paul says of the Gentiles, You were once far off, but have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Or speaks of Jesus as the one who came and preached peace to you who were far off, you Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. So this promise is not geographically limited to one place. It's available through the geographical span of the world. And it's available through the chronological span of human existence on the planet until Jesus Comes. And this all fits together, doesn't it? Because the, the, command, the commission was, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is very consistent. It's very God-like. It's the way he works. And finally and shortly, the gospel is powerful. It gives specific commands. It makes specific promises. It causes gospel growth. 
Look at verse 41. So those who receive, so if as you're reading a story, you have to pay attention to what the author is doing. He's finished talking about Peter's words, and now he is giving sort of a summary statement of how the Pentecost morning ended. And this is the way it ended. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. When the power of the gospel, God's word, is cherished and proclaimed by the enabling grace of the Holy Spirit, God causes growth to happen. And God reserves the right for how the growth will look like. God determines just how the growth is going to happen. He is not in debt to us to cause growth to happen because we did the preaching of the gospel. He does it as he pleases. There have been missionaries in Muslim countries who have spent a whole lifetime and didn't see a convert. That was not a failed mission. The God of the mission knows what he is doing. Later on, somebody shows up and 3,000 people are saved at once. If such a minister is a proud, self-centered person, they will try to write a book, a best-selling book, and title it, How to Convert 3,000 with One Sermon. That will be because they do not know the way God works. He brings growth, but he is in charge of just how the growth happens in any one particular place at any one particular time. On this Pentecost morning, he was pleased to bring in 3,000, over 3,000 in one swoop. But we can live with anticipation and hope and expectation and prayer that God bless the works of our hands because we think like the Apostle Paul. I planted, Apollos watered, But God gave the growth. It's not in the minister to create the growth. A minister who knows how to grow a church is one who is growing his own church, not God's church. It's only God who grows his church. But he does it by means of the labors of those he calls there to serve. So let's ask God's people with your children at home, with your neighbors, with your colleagues, as a community of God's people, let's have the mindset of Psalm 126. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So our joy as God's people does not hang on how many baptisms we had in one particular year. It hangs on God is helping us to trumpet the word, and then he is in charge of just how many come in in response to the word. Let us pray. Oh God, make us a people who never get over the beauty, the gloriousness, and the power and sufficiency of your word to do your work. Not only in your church, not only in the world, but also in our own lives, in our families, and everything you desire to do. We rejoice, Lord, that you have given us a solid and sure word that endures even when heaven and earth will pass. Let that be our joy. Let that be our confidence. Let that be our security. In Jesus' name, amen.